We last time did verses 2, 3, and 4, so this week we're dealing with verses 5 through 8. 5 through 8. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll dig in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the provision of your word. We thank you that your word, O oh God, is both essential and sufficient, that all that we need is contained within it, and I pray that you would feed us richly this day. Pray that the, uh, that the transforming work of the same Holy Spirit who inspired this text, that he will be working in our hearts to convict us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and ultimately, Lord, to change us. And as we, the saints, are equipped this morning by the teaching of your word, I pray that we would minister one to another, bringing us as a church together corporately into a greater place of maturity to be perfect, finished, complete, whole, and lacking nothing. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, the today in verse 5, we begin with a verse that is very familiar and very well known and very misunderstood. In fact, this passage today is a very, very good example of a passage that is typically well known, but typically not well understood. It's also a very good example of a passage of scripture that, um, that should not be taken in isolation. And I talk about this all the time, regulars will be almost bored of me saying it now, but, but we, are, we are coming at the Bible in our era, in a time when we have more access to scripture than we ever have done. More, um, more ability to be able to study it in various tools available, both free online and in book form and what have you. And yet we are the most isolationist in our approach to Scripture. In other words, we memorize a single verse here and we memorize a single verse over there and we're blissfully ignorant of context and the impact that it has. What we're going to see this morning is how to understand this well-known verse in verse 5. You have to see it in context of verses 2, 3, and 4, which we saw last time. So if we dig in then, last time we saw, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, though trials aren't joyful, though they aren't nice in any way, shape, or form, in one sense, that what happens is, is that we consider, we view them as being something that is joyful and good, because we see the bigger picture. When we consider the suffering and the trial here and now, it's not pleasurable, it's not nice, it's not a good thing. But when we see God's hand in it, when we see the bigger picture, when we see what God is doing through our lives, because of this, then we can be joyful in that. Because we understand that when our faith, our trust in God is tested, then we end up becoming Christians who know how to endure. See, we, we as we said last time, we place our trust in Christ, we place our faith in him, and it's the harder thing to do, to trust him for all eternity. But then we so often struggle with trusting him here and now in all the little details. 
And so that kind of faith, the faith that trusts him in all the little details, is not a different kind of faith to the faith that we have when we first believe. It's the same thing. It's trusting in Jesus. We just need to learn to do it better. And so the faith that we have, the faith that began with us first trusting in Christ, that faith gets tested, and as it's tested, we endure, and God produces steadfastness. And that is important, and that is something to rejoice over, because steadfastness needs to take its full effect. And we noted there were two commands, the command to consider it joy, and the command to then let steadfastness have its full effect. If you don't approach trials in the right way, then you don't produce steadfastness. But there is also the danger of producing steadfastness, endurance, and then not allowing that endurance to have its full effect. And the full effect, the ultimate goal that we're working towards here, is to be perfect and complete. The word perfect meaning finished, the word complete, speaking of wholeness. And just to emphasize what he means by that, he then clarifies by saying that we would lack nothing. Lacking in nothing. We, we would lack nothing, we would be complete, because God has worked his purposes out in us. It is the process of sanctification. So there's your potted summary of last time. When we come to verse 5... I want you to notice immediately that there are words that are connecting us to the previous section. Now, those of you who are getting more serious about your Bible studies, this is the sort of thing you should be looking for. You should be looking to see these words that connect to other parts of Scripture, immediate context, other parts of the book, um, other parts of Scripture. We should be looking for those connections because it shows us how this verse is so clearly resting on the previous verses. Because he ended verse 4 saying that we would be lacking in nothing, and in the very next expression he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. That lacking is the connection between the two sections. Okay? So, when we are mature and sanctified and we are finished and we are whole, then there is nothing that we lack. But right now, it may well be that we lack wisdom. That means that we're not yet finished, we're not whole, we're not complete, God's work is not yet done, and we need to do something about that. And that's then what he is going to be talking about in this section. The other part that links to that uh, previous section is in verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. I'm not a fan of the ESV translation here, no doubting, because the Greek is quite emphatic. It says in... in, in um, in nothing doubting. In nothing doubting. In, in other words, it's not just saying no doubting, it says doubting about absolutely nothing. So we have the repetition of lacking, and we have the repetition of nothing. We are to lack nothing, and if we're lacking wisdom, then the solution to that is to ask in faith with uh, nothing in the realm of doubt. So there's your connection, so we see that what we're going to be looking at rests on the way in which we walk through trials. In fact, if you go right the way to the end of this section, 
um, this whole section ends in verse 15. Um, then you see in verse 12, it's talking about remaining steadfast under trial. We have trials, we have endurance. The, the theme continues through this whole section. So all that is to say that when we come to this well-known passage, we need to see it in the context of trials, in the context of endurance, in the context of what's just gone before, and we need to read it in such a manner. I think that will clarify a few things. Because this is how I have always understood this verse. You're probably, most of you, in the same kind of position. But I always look at this verse and I would say, well look, here we are, and if, if I wanted to know, do I lie, then I can go to the Bible, and the Bible tells me not to, and so I don't. Um, should I kill someone? Well, the Bible says I shouldn't, so I don't. Should I be kind to people? Well, the Bible says I should, so I should. So there's all these things that we know what we should do because the Bible tells us, right? But you know what? Should I take this job, or should I take that job? Should I go this way, or should I go that way? Should I, should I respond in this manner or that manner? And, and there may be a variety of different things that the Bible doesn't specifically tell us what to do. Many of us would like to be able to turn to Hezekiah chapter 32 and say, uh, Anthony, today what you should do is this and not that. But the Bible doesn't do that. And we trust and we believe that the Bible is sufficient. And that means that not only do we embrace all it does tell us, but we completely embrace the realm of what we are not told. And so we come to this verse and what we typically think is, okay, well, I don't know what to do in this particular situation. There's no Bible verse that tells me what to do. You know, is it, I'm in a rush. Is it quicker to take the five or to go through Glendale? You know, what do I do? And so what we do is we say, aha, James 1 verse 5. I'm lacking in wisdom. Let me ask God for that wisdom. Not what the verse is talking about. Not what the verse is talking about at all. I would tell you how long I used to believe that and how recently I changed, but I would embarrass myself. So let me just proceed to tell you what the text actually does say. Okay? I think the first thing to understand here is that, as we said already the last two weeks in the introduction and last week, that wisdom is the central theme in the book of James. Wisdom is the central theme. The book reeks, reaches its crescendo in chapter 3 and verse 13, where it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And that is, uh, as we argue in the introduction, you can go back and listen to that if you missed it, and we will talk about it when we get there. But the way that the book is structured is done in such a way that we are to see chapter 3 and verse 13 as being the sort of focal point, the centre, as it were, um, of the book. And so wisdom, and specifically as that section goes on, the distinction between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom is really the theme of the book. The, the problem that we have is that wisdom is one of those words that we don't understand what the Bible means by it. Let me give you another example, and a very easy one. In English, we use the word hope to mean something that we would like to happen that may not happen. You know? Well, we're, we're planning on going to the park today, but the forecast says there's a chance of rain. I hope it doesn't rain. What do we mean? We, we're not saying, I declare that there will be no rain, I am a prophet of God. What we're saying is, I just hope that it doesn't. It may well do. The forecast is that it might, but I hope that it doesn't. 
But we, I hope that we know, see I'm doing it again now, I hope that we know that when we see the word hope in scripture, it has a completely different meaning, almost opposite really. That when we have hope in Christ, there's no mights and maybes and possibilities and goes against predictions, but rather with hope in scripture, we're talking about something that is of absolute assurance. When we talk about our blessed hope in the coming of Christ, we don't say, well, he's probably not going to come back now, but I really blessedly hope he does. You know, what we mean is we are absolutely certain and absolutely sure, 100% certitude, Jesus is coming back. That's what we mean by hope, right? So what do we mean by wisdom? Wisdom in English today typically means a simply and purely a gaining of knowledge. You know, I don't know what to do in this situation. I'll pray for wisdom. What are we asking for? We're asking to get some understanding or some knowledge to, to, to know the right answer that we didn't know before. Is that what the Bible means by wisdom? Well, if you've read the book of Proverbs, you might be clued up to, to answer no there. Remember, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And immediately, you know that it, we're not purely talking about understanding and knowledge. That there is a spiritual aspect to it. But in James 3, in verse 13 again, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And then it says, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You cannot read the book of Proverbs, you cannot read the Old Testament, you cannot come to the New Testament having done that without seeing wisdom as being something that is inherently connected to the way in which you live. The person who lacks wisdom is not you not knowing which road to take. It's not you having two job offers and wondering which job you should take. That's not what the passage is talking about. It's talking about people who lack in biblical wisdom, and that is seen in them living in an ungodly manner. And so that is what is being spoken of here. In other words, if you're living your life right now, and you keep stumbling into the same old sins, if you're living your life right now, and you find yourself despairing, if you, context, find yourself in the midst of trial and you're struggling to count it all joy, then you need wisdom. Do, do you see how logical the sequence is? He's saying right from the off, and I told you this last time, it's like that sucker punch in the first few seconds of the first round. Hey everybody, greetings. Count it joy when you suffer. Boom. And immediately we're caught and we're like, whoa. That's hard. I'm not sure I do that. I'm not sure I live that way. I'm not sure that's, that's my instinctive response. So then he says, so you're lacking in wisdom then? To which, if you were caught by that sucker punch in verse 2, the answer is definitively, yeah, I need some more. Because, and here's the link with verse 4, lacking in nothing, if you do count it all joy, you will grow in steadfastness. If you, if you then allow that steadfastness to have its full effect, you will end up being a finished work, complete, and lacking in nothing, in nothing at all. So how's that going for you? 
On, on a scale of 1 to 100, how would you rank yourself in the outworking of verses 2 through 4? 90%, maybe you're great at it. But if it's 90% or even 99%, it's not perfect, it's not whole, and you're still lacking in something. And what you're lacking in is wisdom. So, for some of you, this might be a bit of a kind of a, a, a kind of whoa moment. You can, I might have to give you a few seconds just to kind of get your head together now and say, okay, so I totally misunderstood that verse. Now I get the context of it. What then are we talking about here? And the answer is this. This is what we're talking about. What we're saying is, as you go through trials, and as you say, okay, here I am, life's a mess around me, all this stuff's going on, I'm really, really struggling, and I know that I'm supposed to consider this a good thing. Because I know that God who is sovereign allows trials into my life to mature me and to make me who he wants me to be. But I keep not living like that. I keep not responding like that. I keep not, not, not responding in a biblical manner in the midst of trials. This isn't easy. This is hard. And so then, what do we say? We say, you know what, I need to ask for wisdom. I need to ask God to make me a wise person, to make me the kind of person who responds not like the fool in the book of Proverbs, but responds in a godly manner in all circumstances, that even in the toughest of trials, I'm there saying, you got this God, I know this is for your, for your glory and my good, this is a great thing that's happening right now, here's an opportunity to mature. And again, like I said last week, Tears streaming down your face, shaking, struggling, wrestling with the pain that the trials bring, but nonetheless trusting God fully. And so it is in that situation that we need to ask for wisdom. And so in the second half of verse 5, we come to the second, uh, sorry, the third command of this letter already, which is let him ask God. And again, these third-person commands are tricky to translate into English because we typically use the word let, and let so often implies, you know, you're allowed to do it, you know? You know, I'm going to, you say to your kids, I'm going to let you do this, meaning, you know, you don't have to, I'm not making you do it, but you're allowed to. That's not what the text is saying. It's saying you should, you must. So, if you do lack wisdom... If you are not yet perfect and complete, then you must ask God. And immediately, before we skim over that, that is a profound statement right there. Because the solution to the imperfections in our life is not a a five-step plan. It's not some motivational speech. It's not us doing things a certain way, following a certain protocol or, or, or what have you. It's God. It's God. Christianity in this era has become colour by numbers. It's become this thing whereby we follow the kind of instructions and we kind of do this and, and then things will happen the way that we want them to. It's, it's ridiculous. You know? And 
And so churches, you know, we, we as churches, we want to make most of the resources, make the most of the resources we have. We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to say advertising is of the devil or anything like that. But at the same point, it's so easy for churches to put their trust in marketing rather than their trust in God. It's so easy for churches to put their trust in their own cleverness rather than putting their trust in God. God does not, is not sitting around waiting for us to suddenly come up with a clever idea and say, ah, oh, brilliant, now, you've, now you're with the program, now we can bless you. God just wants us to be faithful. And our faith is seen in us trusting him with the details. Trusting him with the details. That's what faith is all about. Especially in the midst of trials. And so, the solution to the lacking of wisdom is to ask God. And then in, in support of that, we're given two of God's attributes um, that we can um, meditate on and we can recognize who it is that we're asking and why we should be asking him. Okay? So God is one who gives. So the overall picture here is that the reason that we ask God for things is that God gives us things. He is the one who is our provider, and he is the one to whom we ask, and he is the one who will choose to give. Now, of course, the danger is, is that when we ask God for certain things, he might choose not to give it to us. I um, can't remember who it was in the 60s that saying, Oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? Is it Joplin? I can't remember. But yeah, um, a couple of people nodding, bad childhood. Um, but yeah, you know, when we ask God for, you know, give us this luxury item and what have you, you know, the answer may well be no. But we might ask for something far more pure. Ask him for healing. Asking him for saving someone. And, and the answer may still be no. And so it's sometimes difficult for us to come to God because when we come to God and we pray and we pray and we pray, if the answer then is still no, it can be a struggle for us. And so James gives us these couple of reminders. Firstly, the giving of God is, is a giving that here in the ESV and in most versions is, is generously. I'm not a fan of this translation. It's a difficult word to translate, mostly because this is the only time anywhere in the Bible that the word is used. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a, of, a, of a struggle to get a full understanding of it. But typically in other Greek literature, it means um, without hesitation or perhaps without reservation. In other words, God is generous in the sense that he doesn't hold back. I don't think generous is the best translation, because when we think of, you know, a generous aunt or a generous granny at Christmas time, we're thinking about, you know, maybe one granny gives you a, a small little gift for, for five bucks, and then the other granny kind of spends a fortune on you, and you've got a, you've got a generous granny, you know? That's not really what it's talking about. It, it's saying that God doesn't hold back. There's no sort of like, well, you know, we'll see. There's no sort of, well, I don't want to give you too much. There's just no reservation and there's no hesitation. There's no, and this is important, wavering. And I think that the problem with translating it generously, though it, it communicates part of what the word is saying, it only communicates part of it. It doesn't communicate the other part of it. Because a, a huge portion of what James is communicating to us in this word is he's saying, when God gives, he doesn't waver. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't go, oh, you know, I don't know. 
Because what's going to happen in the next verse, next verses, is that us wavering and us hesitating is going to be contrasted with God who does neither. That's the important thing to get. So God's giving is without hesitation, without reservation. And his giving is to all and without reproach. Without reproach. He just, everything that this text is telling us is that God's heart is to give to us, to not hold back to us, and to, to, basically, um, to basically give to us as much as he can. We want God to give. God wants to give. That's a pretty good situation, right? If God wants to, to give to us, and if, God, uh, if we want him to give, then that's a very good situation. And so it is concluded at the end of the verse, um, and it will be given to him. So when we look at verse 5 by itself, you have a verse that is beloved by the prosperity gospel teachers, because it is a verse that says, you ask and it's given, end of story. But then we have in verse 6, the caveat, but, here's the contrast, but let him, and again, this is a command, this isn't, you might, you're allowed to, this is a command, you must ask in faith with no doubting. Now again, the prosperity teachers, what they like this kind of verse, they'll say, ha ha, you didn't exercise enough faith, that's why you've not been healed, now you can have an opportunity to exercise your faith by sending me a large check, and in doing so, you will show your faith, and then you will be healed. Still not healed? I guess you didn't exercise enough faith. Maybe the check wasn't big enough. Let's try again. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. But that's not what it's talking about. And I, and I think we need to see the connection here, okay? Because we've talked already about repetition of words. We've talked about the repetition of lacking. We've talked about the repetition of nothing. Let's talk about one more. The repetition of faith. Repetition of faith. In verse 3, the testing is a testing of our faith. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here we are, as we said at the beginning, we are people who have exercised faith. We have faith in Christ. Now, as Christians, we too readily separate these things. We too readily say, well, I have faith in that I've trusted Christ for my salvation, but I'm not really full of faith. And we like to separate these things. The, the, the Bible doesn't do that. There's people of faith and people not of faith. That isn't to say that if we don't have full faith that we're not saved. It's just to say that this is just a progression of the same thing. Trusting in Jesus for our salvation and trusting Jesus in trials is exactly the same thing. It's trusting Jesus. That simple. So when trials come, it then test us. It says, okay, you said that you trusted in Jesus. You said that you were going to place your trust in him when you die. That you're going to place your trust in him now. Well, look at the situation. You've lost this. You've got troubles here. This is on the horizon. This is, looks like it might happen. Who do you trust now? Who do you trust now? Do you trust completely, wholly, fully in Christ? Or you need to pull a ball out of your back pocket. You know, we look at the Israelites and we look at their worship of other gods 
And we see it as being this like, oh my goodness, how could they possibly do that? They're supposed to be worshipping Yahweh. How could they suddenly be worshipping Baal as well? What horrible people. I would never do anything like that. And that here we are trusting in Jesus and then trials come and suddenly we're trying to find solutions that involve lying, that involve doing ungodly and unbiblical things, things that we never thought that we would do, we do in the midst of trials. We're, we can be people who say, well, I'm just going to stand on the Bible and the Bible alone, I'm going to do what the Bible says. And then trials come and we say, well, we've got to be pragmatic. Well, the Bible not good enough for you now? And, and that's the danger. That's the danger. The danger is that our trust is elsewhere. And so what trials do is they put a spotlight on us. And they say, what is your trust really like? And then we see in the journey of Abraham, this whole journey of faith. Go to a land that I will show you, leave everything behind, and leave your family behind. So Abraham does, he obeys, he goes, he has faith. But he takes his family with him, takes Lot with him. And again and again we see Abraham not trusting, Abraham not trusting. And God uses these trials to put a spotlight on his lack of faith until finally on that mountain he pulls up the knife to sacrifice his only son. His faith being refined to the point that he knows that A, God will keep his promise and B, that he's going to keep his promise through that son and yet he's prepared to kill that son trusting only in the possibility of God raising him from the dead. That was the degree of his faith. And so, faith is tested. Now, it is that same faith that is being referenced in verse 6. Let him ask, so you've got to ask God, you're asking God for wisdom, you're asking God for a way to behave properly, think properly, function properly in the midst of trials. You've got to ask in faith, in trusting and with no doubting. The doubting here is so often, I think, misunderstood. In nothing doubting. The Greek's very emphatic here. Okay? And what we think is this. Now, you're asking God for wisdom, folks. Do you think he's going to do it? Well, I'm pretty sure he's going to do it. Ah, but do you really think he's going to do it? In other words, the doubting is perceived to be something along the lines of, do you really think that God's able to do this? Do you really think he's going to do this? And of course, in the hands of the prosperity gospel teachers, in the hands of those who, who uh, give a false gospel, it's a case of, ah, well, you didn't get what you, what you asked God for, your luxury item, because you, you didn't really believe that he was going to give it to you. And so it is seen along those lines. I'm not sure that's it. I'm not sure that's it at all. Let's go through the verse a little bit further and see if we get some clues as to what he's talking about. So we're going to ask God with this same trust, this trust that is being refined, this trust that is, that is being um, made enduring. And then there will be no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In other words... And, and James loves his analogies, and this is a good one here. The, the idea with a wave is this, that the sea doesn't suddenly say, you know what, I'm going to suddenly stand to attention because I feel like it. But rather that 
geographical concerns, be it the wind, be it the tide, be it everything else around it, that these things come together and they force it to move. They force the water to move. The water doesn't decide to move. It is just moved by circumstances. The one who doubts is one who is moved by circumstances. Again and again, we see those who say, I stand on the word of God, and then trials come along, and they say, oh, well, you know, well, I'm, I'm really upset right now, so I need to do this or this or this. That's the opposite of what Peter called being sober-minded. We're not supposed to be waves. We're not supposed to be tossed to and fro. We're not supposed to be controlled by our circumstances. Rather, we're the ones that are supposed to stand firm. So the one who doubts is somebody who, like the wave of the sea, is driven and tossed by the wind, which in this context would probably be a reference to the trials, pardon me, the trials and the circumstances surrounding them. For that person, verse 7, must not suppose that he will receive anything from God. He will not suppose that he will receive anything from God. In other words, again, we're going to come back and talk about what this means practically, but for now, understand this, that someone who doubts is a person who is, is afflicted and impacted by their circumstances, and when they say to God, hey, God, give me wisdom, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. That's very clear. So let's just backtrack a little bit so make sure we understand this. When we're asking for wisdom, we're asking for God to complete the work of sanctification in us. And you'd think, well, that's a great prayer. He's always going to answer that prayer. I mean, you can say, hey, God, mature me. Hey, God, help me to mature and become more like Jesus. Now, that's the prayer that God can get behind, right? That's a prayer that he's always going to say yes to. James says, no, no, it's not. If you're a person who doubts... If you're a person who is blown about like waves, then you're not going to get your wisdom. You're not going to get it. It's not going to be given to you. In other words, God will not mature you. Just let that stinging indictment just rest on you for a moment. You can come to God, ask him for maturity, and he says, no. No, I'm not going to give you maturity. You can stay in your immaturity. Isn't that shocking? Let's look for an explanation, shall we? When we come to verse 8, the ESV and most translations here say he is a double-minded man. The, the, the expression here in the original, there is no verb. It just says a double-minded, double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is very fond of, of little sayings and quips um, aphorisms as they're called. He's very fond of these where he'll make statements. Um, Verse verse 11, um, so also will the rich man fade away in the the midst of his pursuits. Um, Verse 25, uh, be be no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts uh, and he will be blessed in his doing. Uh, Let me look for another one. Um, Oh, here's the best one. Chapter 2 and verse 12, mercy triumphs over judgment. James loves these little aphorisms, these little proverbial statements that are just very pithy and succinct, you know? And I think that the best way to translate verse 8 is simply as another one of those. And I would translate it, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, 
This last phrase, this last verse, is really the key for us to understand what a person who is doubting when they ask looks like. So let's unpack it a little bit. It's clear in the context he's dealing with the doubters, right? The one who doubts, no doubting, verse 6, the one who doubts, verse 6, that person, that's the one who doubts in verse 7, and then here, a double-minded man is clearly referring to the same person. So the double-minded man is one who doubts. Literally in the Greek, it's a word that not only is only in the book of James, it's here in chapter 4 and verse 8, where more conclusions will, will come from this passage, but it's a word that was never found anywhere in Greek before the book of James. Most, most commentators think that James made this word up. He created a word to express what he wanted. I can relate to that. I make up words all the time. Talk nonsense half the time. But, but um, James is an is, is is example of someone who makes words up. And he literally says in the Greek, too sold. Too sold. It is a, it is a double-souled or, double, uh, or a two-souled person. Now, again, so we've got to be careful about our definitions, which is why it's translated minded rather than soul, so we don't misunderstand. We tend to think of the word soul as being distinct from uh, our emotions, being distinct from our bodies. But the, but the Greek word soul, and, and more accurately, the Hebrew concept of a soul, is just life, just life generally. And, and so the picture being painted here is one of a double-lifed person. A person who has two separate lives. And he says, if you are a person who is two-souled, you're unstable in everything. What does a two-souled person look like? With one of your souls, one of your lives, you say, I trust Jesus completely. He is my everything. I trust in him for now and for eternity. Christ is everything to me. He is the master of me, the master of my faith, the master of all that he surveys. He is the creator and he is the ruler and I bow the knee before him and I place my trust in him alone and I believe that his word that he has given to us by his Holy Spirit is sufficient in all things. Amen. And thus we stand. And we put a bumper sticker on our car that backs us up, and we wear the t-shirts, and we, 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 we say the right things on social media, and there we are, we're the Christian. And then trials come. And then we become a different person. Well, I really trust Jesus, but you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. Well, I mean, the Bible, of course the Bible is the word of God, of course it's true, but we have to be practical. Well, I understand that what you're doing may be biblical, but I'm really upset. You know, all of these various things that we use as excuses to be different from the person that we claim to be. And at this point, it's absolutely imperative that we do not think about the person next to us, the person that we think this fits, that we don't think about our spouse, but we think about us. We need to lack nothing. We, we lack wisdom. And there is this very real and present danger that we could ask God for wisdom and he could say no to us because we're too sold. Because what we want is we like, yeah, we want to worship you, Jesus. We want to worship you with all of our hearts. And God says, okay, let's find out. 
Let's find out. Let's, let's send in the storms. Let's send in the trials. And let's see how much you want to follow me. Let's see to what, let you see, he knows already. Let's see, let you see to what degree you're prepared to trust in me and to walk with me. That's the question. And, and the reality is this is if we want to, on the one hand, publicly be this good, solid Christian, but privately, we don't want to give up this sin, we don't want to stop doing that, and we want to justify this behaviour, and we want to behave that way, and we think that this circumstance means that this thing that we wouldn't normally do is okay on this occasion, and if we want to justify everything, if you want to be somebody different, then don't ask God to mature you, because quite frankly, you don't want it. You just don't want it. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, verse 6, go back to verse 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. It's like we come to God and we say, God, I just want to follow you. I just want you to make me complete. I want you to change me. I want you to make me like Jesus. And God says, are you sure? I mean, are you, are you sure? Because that means you've got to stop doing this thing that you love so much. That means you have to stop reacting this way. That means that you can't have a get-out clause for this. That means you have to be prepared to be treated badly here. That means you have to, to endure all of these things as Christ did. Do, do, do you want that? Do you want to be that person? Do you want to be the kind of Abraham who goes from the land that he was in to the land that he's shown and say, look at me, I'm obeying God all the while with Lot in your entourage. Because if I'm really honest with you, I think that's what most Christians want. They want to be the Abraham of Genesis 12. They want to be the Abraham who left with Lot. They want to be the Christian that's, you know, kind of obedient. Mostly obedient. But we don't want to be walking up a mountain with our beloved son to offer him as a sacrifice. Sobering, isn't it? Man, James does this. If you think I'm being tough, you should see the rest of the letter. He's got some blows to rain down upon us. He's going to make us wrestle with this. And right from the off, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you need to consider it joy when you go through these trials because God's working his purpose to make you complete. How's that going for you? Struggling? You need some wisdom? Okay, you ask God for it then, but I'll give you this other warning. If you're going to ask God to make you complete, if you're going to ask God to make you a wise person who lives according to heavenly wisdom and not to earthly wisdom, then you have to be absolutely resolved in your heart and mind that you will not be too sold. That there won't be the Christian life and the hidden life. That there won't be the doing things when it suits you and doing things when it doesn't, not doing things when it doesn't suit you. That you, you are done with that. And if you've been a Christian as long as I've been, you probably realize that there's this cycle that you go through where you say, okay, now I get it. Now I give myself wholly and completely to you. And God says, okay, thank you. Next test. Oh boy. I failed. But now, God, I'm going to give myself wholly and fully. Okay. And on we go, and on we go, and on we go. 
That's how the journey looks. There's no avoiding it. It's dirty, it's bloody, it's messy, it's tough. What do we want? What do we want? If you want to be the Abraham of Genesis 12, if you want to mostly obey, I suggest that you stay at home. Ironically, when the governor's just let you back, well, he didn't, he got told, but you know what I mean. Until we finish the book of James. Because you're not going to get any encouragement from this book. He goes on and on about someone being double-souled. He goes on and on about stark choices, heavenly wisdom, earthly wisdom. To James, there is one way and one way only, and that is a faith that lives itself out and shows itself to be true, shows itself to be enduring by living with heavenly wisdom. That's what faith looks like. And so I want to leave you this morning with James's warning in your ears. You need to be asking God for wisdom, but do you really want it? Think carefully. And if you don't really want it, if that's the honest answer, then pray that God changes your heart. And if you do want it, buckle up, because he's going to give it to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenge of scripture today. Father, we so often we pray, you know, purify us, sanctify us, change us, mold us, make us. It's just like asking you to pummel us and to punch us, torment us. We know that the road to sanctification is paved like any road to the cross. Paved with suffering, paved with trials, paved with persecution. May we be seen to stand firm. May we consider it all joy, knowing that you are answering the prayer, the prayer to make us wise, the prayer to make our conduct heavenly. And so we ask today again, give us wisdom. Make us who you want us to be. May we no longer be two-souled, double-minded, wavering. But as you give without reservation, may we give ourselves to you without reservation. May we leave behind our sinful desires. May we be content with our lost hopes, our failed dreams. And may we seek to find our satisfaction in you alone. Amen. Amen. Boy, that's the passage of scripture, isn't it? It gets us in a good mindset for communion this morning. Again, if anyone came in late and hasn't got a communion cup, they're on the back table. Um, you can pull the upper of the two layers and you will find on the top there your, your little cracker.
wafer, rather. And then for those who need to be without gluten, there's a gluten-free one in the bag. As we, as we come to the Lord's table today, I think that a sobering look at our lives is what is often done before we take communion. I think we've been doing that for the last 45 minutes to an hour, haven't we? So we come now with uh, an awareness of, of the situation. Um, Jim, this is on the back table here. On this table there. Um, we come with a real awareness now of, of the seriousness of the situation. That God who does not hold back is moulding us and changing us so that we would become people who don't hold back. That, that salvation, which we so often separate out too much, we talk of justification and sanctification, it, it, it's salvation, it's faith. And this is what God has, has, he has saved us, we've been declared righteous, but he is saving us and he's moulding us and maturing us. And both of those things involve us being all in. Placing our trust fully in Christ, that we might be justified. Placing our trust fully in Christ, that we might be sanctified. The model of this, clearly, constantly in Scripture, is the cross. The Christ who made all people, suffered at the hands of those he made, and he went to the cross. He endured physical torment, emotional torment, and spiritual torment. And he did it all, being able to stop it in any moment. As we walk through our trials, our goal almost constantly is to just stop the darn things. What can we do to stop this? What can we do to stop this? And so we try to resolve issues, we try to, to resolve problems. Rather than the act of faith that is counting it joy, seeing the bigger picture. And so the model for us is Christ. And this bread that we have before us represents his body that was broken. How he was prepared to go through his trials, to go through Gethsemane, to go to the cross, to go through all of that without raising a finger, without raising his voice. To go and do that because he trusted the Father. As we take the bread together this morning, we remember that that death was for us, in our place, for our sins. And let us also consider that as we place our trust in Christ, then what we're doing is we're echoing the trust that he placed in the Father on the road to Calvary. Consider that as we chew together. Let's take the bread.
the uh, second layer of the cup. You can peel back ready. The cup, as we know, represents his blood that he shed for us. He, he died to conquer sin and death. And so, by placing our trust in him, we can be redeemed from our sin and we can be with him forever. But that power over sin speaks of the given Holy Spirit as well, who empowers us that we need not be double-minded. He empowers us so that we can live wise lives. This blood is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is not a ticket to heaven. But the blood of Christ is freedom from sin, of which one of the greatest ramifications is a place with him in eternity. But another wonderful and glorious truth is that we need no longer be like waves tossed to and fro by the wind. That we can be single-minded. We only have to, without doubting, absolutely sure of what that means and the trials it may bring. Ask him for wisdom. Let's rejoice in his shed blood for now and for the future together. Father, thank you so much that you shed your son's blood in our place for our sins. That he was willing to endure that suffering that we might live, truly live. And so let us live those lives now, lives of wholehearted devotion, lives set upon you, lives willing to withstand the storm, lives that will let that endurance take its full effect, lives that bring glory to your holy name. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. Give us that wisdom, we pray. All the saints said, Amen.